0: Glad you all are here this morning. I want to welcome you if you're visiting with us. Uh, just uh, count it a privilege. There's some great churches in our community, and uh, we don't um, even try and say that we're the best. I don't know there is such a thing. They're all different, and we, we want to, uh, I think, we celebrate that. That different churches um, connect to people in different uh, ways and different places in their journey. and um, we are glad that you're sharing your moment with us this morning, and should this be your first and last visit with us, hear us cheering for you that you find a church home and land and become part of a church in, in a meaningful way, to know and be known. It's so important, So, um, but we're thankful that you're here. Uh, if you'd like to know more about who we are as a people, you can visit this little table on the way out. We can send you out with a little packet. Um, it's got some great information in there. Uh, it's got a little uh, gift card, I think, to Chick-fil-A also, so you can... Take that packet and can't do it today, but maybe uh, tomorrow you can go to Chick Fil A and just break that out and just kind of see what we're about. So um, we're glad you're here. If you're part of us and you're here regularly, I mean, I'm 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 really glad you're here too. I, I think it's a uh, uh, man. This sunlight's been nice the last couple of days, hasn't it? It's been sweet. We'll talk about that here in a moment. We want to begin our morning or continue our morning, I should say, uh, in prayer. I want to pray for. Uh, Creekside, or Creekside Church of Christ, uh, Randy Dahl, uh, passed away yesterday. He's a pastor of a church there, was going through some treatment for uh, cancer and um, had an embolism and passed away. And I also have a high school friend that lost his wife yesterday morning. So I want to pray for our, our lad, Trevor. So let's pray for these churches and pray for these folks that are, are struggling. God, what a uh, what a what a beautiful morning. Wow, we are... So glad to be here. So thankful for this sun and this, uh, uh, the warmth that's starting to bathe the day. Lord, we are uh, grateful for your goodness and your mercy to us, to give us this sunrise today, Lord. And this beautiful day yesterday, and Lord, we uh, at the same time while we are enjoying this sunrise and this light and this warmth uh, that you brought, Lord, we are uh, too. We want um, those of us who know Randy or know. Uh, folks that are part of the church know that we have a sister church in our town that is grieving uh, the loss of of one of her pastors. And Lord, we just want to lift up Creekside Church of Christ, and Lord, we pray that you would bless them this morning, that they would celebrate um, that Randy is worshiping in your presence this morning, that he is um, no longer in pain, he doesn't have to wonder about the darkness of of, uh, cancer and the treatments, uh, that he is in your presence now, and that he is Enjoying you, Lord, we pray that that church will enjoy that while grieving the loss of a brother, a husband, a father, and a friend. Um, Lord, also this morning, I would just pray for a friend, a close to dear friend, Paul, uh, dealing with the loss of his wife um, yesterday, and just pray for little Lewis. Uh, Lord, we uh, don't understand why you work the things you do, um, but we're going to lean not on our own understanding, but we're going to acknowledge you in all our ways. And trust that you'll make our path straight. So we're praying that for Paul and his family, and praying that for little Lewis, as he uh, reckons with this this terrible loss. And Lord, too, we want to just uh, celebrate the uh, the news that we're getting about little Trevor and this treatment that that he's undergoing right now, and these these stats and numbers that we're hearing. Lord, we um, we celebrate those numbers and those figures and that news. But Lord, more than anything, we celebrate you, knowing that that uh, you. Ultimately, hold all things together. That you are going to bring healing if there's healing to be brought, and we ask for that. We continue to share the desire of our heart is for a complete and absolute healing and a long, healthy life for little Trevor Daniel. Um, we pray for his family, Lord, as they are stretched and strained in so many different directions. That that you are um, blessing them, that you're sustaining them, Lord. We pray too that um, you will give them some view of what you're doing, even if even in the even in the darkness, that they can somehow see your. Your goodness and your hand at work. Um, entrusting these folks to you, Lord. Entrusting this time to you. Uh, entrusting a little bit of a complicated uh, um, exposition this morning. Lord, I, I, I can't make sense of anything, and I just entrust this to the Holy Spirit and ask Him, ask you to uh, give us the Holy Spirit to make things plain this morning so we can see what you've worked over the ages. Um, we entrust this time to you, Lord. I'm praying these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Matthew chapter 4 this morning, and you can turn there. Luke is, Luke is my uh, oldest son, my middle child. He's dating a young lady who uh, is very close friends with uh, Grace uh, for many years. And she is teaching in a school in Alaska. Uh, it's two hops, two um, uh, like... Bush plane hops from Anchorage. This thing is this little town, this Eskimo village, or I don't know what you'd call it, Inuit village, is really remote, and um, we we didn't get the chance to go to the village this summer. Uh, uh, we had the chance to vacation in Alaska, and when we were there this summer, uh, the the daylight was really strange. You only get a two or three hours of darkness uh, each night. So we went when we first landed. We went to Walmart at like midnight, and it was like like five in the afternoon. It felt like five in the afternoon. Just really weird uh, light cycles. Well, they're in complete darkness right now. I think they may be on the verge of coming out of it with maybe just a a little wee uh, snapshot of daylight. And it's just fascinating to me to to talk with Becca, as her name, and just kind of hear what that's like to live in that sort of environment. And she described this feeling, these these just sort of overwhelming feelings of depression and this this, uh, uh, sort of almost uh, community-wide sense of depression and uh, it's it's sadly there's sort of a uh, um, all too frequent bell that tolls for someone yet another person who's taken their own life. Uh, Alaska has the highest suicide rate in our country, and apparently that that sort of darkness period of darkness is in conjunction with that time. Oftentimes it happens when it starts to get lighter. But I read one person that said that we don't have the energy to plan those sort of things in the darkness. So we wait till it gets light to follow through on the thing that we made a decision about in the darkness. What a terrible, terrible place to live, man. It just sounds like living in darkness is excruciating. Uh, one, one of the things that, that I've thought about is you don't have to live in Alaska, in a village, you know, with complete darkness all day long to know what that's like. To kind of be able to, to reckon with the metaphor, to connect to the metaphor of living in darkness. Uh, maybe there's a restructuring at work. I mean, a lot of you guys work at L3. I know, I mean, big business kind of makes some big changes, and a lot of times the little guy is not part of the equation. And maybe you're in that environment or you've been in that environment where you know that sort of sense of the metaphor of darkness feels like, where you're not sure if you're going to have a job. You know, you might even say over the water cooler, man, we're in the dark. We're in the dark on where this plan is going. We can relate to that feeling. That saying comes from how you feel. Like I'm, I'm in complete darkness here. I can't make sense of this. Maybe there's a lump that showed up somewhere that it shouldn't. And you go to the doctor, and the doctor's like, well, we can do some, some tests on you and try and figure out what this is. And you know what that darkness feels like. What is going on in my body? Or maybe you've been treated for that sort of thing, whatever it is. But then you deal with that darkness and wondering, is it going to come back? Is it still in my body somewhere, some strain of whatever was going on there? Maybe it's a relationship that's grown dark or something that once provided a sense of well-being and you know, happiness that's become a great sadness for you. I, I think we can all relate to some measure of darkness. And if you haven't encountered darkness yet, I know we have some of our little ones in here with us. Um, man, I'll tell you, enjoy the light. Enjoy your season. Enjoy being a, a, a little boy or a little girl um, and just know that, that God will help sustain you in those times that are coming, but they're coming. They're coming. There will be profound times of darkness. You know, apart from the physical physiological and chemical effects and even hormonal effects of living in darkness, what people describe as a, a, a sense of losing time, losing a sense of time in those Complete dark environments. Uh, In fact, that's what they were apparently very concerned about when these these little soccer player boys were trapped in the 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 cave. Is they were concerned that some of them would would revert to a twenty three hour day, while others in the same little community of trapped children would revert to a twenty five hour day. Where you know day after day that begins to be further people are further and further apart. Where one guy wants to go to sleep because he feels like it's bedtime, and the other one feels like it's time to get up would create a real sense of conflict in that cave. It's strange what happens when you're living in darkness. There's a, you lose a sense of bearing of what just happened and what's coming. It's like navigating in an unfamiliar room. You know, you feel the, the darkness sort of immobilizes you or you can't figure out where to exit and you can't even barely figure out where you just came from. It's frightening and you don't really know, sort of like a dark alley, if you're about to get clobbered Or not, because you can't see what's coming at you. Man, I think um, I've thought about this. I wonder if kids in the foster system are familiar with this. I spoke with one of our counselors that that works with children and uh, was told that, in fact, that that is a a significant problem for children. They're wondering from one day to the next, what's going to happen to me? Things are kind of good right now, but I'm living in a darkness because I don't know what's going to happen. If I'm going to get clobbered with being moved to a new location... She described increased cortisol levels, uh, body retaining fat. Your body is shifting into fight or flight mode. You can't sleep at night because you're always on alert. Living in darkness is excruciating. The unknown is what you're reckoning with, and it is excruciating. I, I think all of us can hopefully relate to living in darkness, if not actually, then at least metaphorically. I want to ask you this morning to keep those sort of feelings, like maybe that sort of pit in your stomach. I'm not sure what's going to happen to my family. I'm not sure what's going to happen to my faith. I'm not sure what's going to happen to my job. I'm not sure what's going to happen to this friendship. I'm, not, I'm just not sure. I'm in the dark here. Take those feelings, that pit in your stomach, that, that, that cold, clammy feeling where your heart starts racing. Keep those as we move into our passage and see if there's some salve and some medicine for that. Let's go into Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, Have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let me kind of give you a map for the morning. It helps me to listen when I kind of know where someone's going. So I want to give you sort of a visual or an audible map, maybe, to where you can kind of visualize where we're going. And um, I, I want to just kind of give you a heads up. It, it's a little bit complicated today. Uh, we're going to be looking at some maps. Uh, geography apparently matters to Matthew, so it's going to matter to us this morning. And it's a little clunky and a little wooden, and um, I don't, I'm not even sure that I can explain it. So I'm going to do my very best. I have some maps. I have my handy-dandy laser pointer, and we're going to climb into this thing and see if these uh, this little trip, a journey around the um, the land of Israel and Judah will help us make sense of what Matthew is doing in this passage. Okay, so we're going to unpack this passage, and then we're going to travel back to where Matthew is talking about in Isaiah chapter 9. Okay, so you can kind of, if you want to, you can put a finger in Isaiah chapter 9, or if you're like sword drill warrior, you can just turn there when we get there. Okay, so let's unpack this passage here in Matthew 4. First of all, this word now Now that his ministry is inaugurated with his baptism, you know, that's just happened. You can look back across the page in Matthew chapter 4 and see that he's been baptized. He's endured the wilderness testing and tempting. And Matthew places the very next scene in this story, in Matthew's gospel, is a move from Nazareth to a place called Capernaum. A few things to just kind of get a big picture lay of the land. Uh, there's a little wee sermon in verse 17. We're going to look at that wee sermon today. It's only nine, word, nine words long. So it's, it's Jesus' first recorded words in Matthew. Okay? And then right after that in verses 20, 18 through 22, he calls his first disciples. I'll be preaching on that next week. And then the Sunday after that I'll be preaching on verses 23 through 25. He's teaching and proclaiming and healing all over Galilee. Okay, so now is sort of saying, hey, pay attention to what's around you. Okay, and then these next words that come out in this passage. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested. Okay, speaking of John the Baptist, his baptizer from a few verses earlier. Okay, John had been ar- arrested at this point, And now when he heard almost seems to be a trigger. It almost seems that now that all the Old Testament prophets have officially been silenced, now I'm going to step into the scene. There's a parable that we'll go to eventually at some, some point in this journey. It's in Matthew chapter 21, and I'll just give you the reference. If you'd like to study that reference on your own at some point uh, later on this week, it's Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 44. It's a story of a vineyard with some tenants, and the owner sends his, sons in, or his, his servants in one at a time or in groups, and they kill them all. And then once the final servant is killed, then he sends in his son. And that's sort of the sense of what's taking place here. Now that John the Baptist is arrested, now Jesus can step into the scene and begin or continue in a very public portion of his ministry. Okay. Now let's go ahead and put up that first map, please. I have four maps this morning, and I'm hoping that I can navigate these four maps in a way that's not too uh, distracting, but is helpful, and we may just kind of leave them up unless I go to a passage, and then you can come back to the map that was up there previously. Okay, now Jesus hailed from Nazareth. Okay, you know, from a few weeks ago, we were talking about uh, we used the the uh, the reference of Hawk Cove, which is somewhat close to us. Hawk Cove is is up around, I think it's north, south of Lake Towacany area, and Hawk Cove uh, uh, was a good reference because it in in uh, the number of people that live in Hawk Cove reconciled with the number of people that lived in Nazareth, 400-something people. Okay, it's not a very large town. Well, in the period since then, since using Hawk Cove as an example, I found from people that actually live around here that Hawk Cove has a lot more in common with Nazareth than I realized. When somebody said, when, when, when Philip uh, told his buddy uh, Nathaniel, he uh, said, hey, man, I found the Messiah. He's come from Nazareth, and his response, can anything good come from Hawk Cove? Okay, that's a fitting reference. Hawk Cove is sort of a a great visual for Nazareth. We know that he hailed from Nazareth. Let me show you where Nazareth is on the map here. Right there. Okay, let me show you some other important points. All four maps we're using today are going to have some different colors in it, but it's basically going to be the same scene. Okay, here's Nazareth right here. Here's the Dead Sea down here. Here's the Jordan. It goes all the way up to right here, the Sea of Galilee. Okay, there's the Jordan. Here's Jerusalem right here. And there's Bethlehem. Okay, Bethlehem, Jerusalem. After Jesus is born, he flees to Egypt. He comes back and moves up, bypasses Jerusalem, moves up to Nazareth. Okay, we know that Jesus was from Nazareth. Well, he came from Nazareth to be baptized. Okay, let's just follow the map. Let's follow what Matthew's telling us and see if we can figure out the point here. He he leaves Nazareth, he travels down to Jerusalem area. To the Jordan to be baptized. Now we know that it was in the area of Jerusalem and and Judea, this is Judea, because the scripture tells us that people were coming from Jerusalem and Judea to hear John the Baptist preaching. And this is where Jesus showed up to be baptized. So it's likely right around this area that Jesus was baptized. Okay. And then shortly after that, we know that he went to the wilderness. And the wilderness, the Qumran community, lived in sort of a wilderness environment. So that was likely in this area right around here between Jerusalem and the Jordan. That would be maybe where Jesus' wilderness testing took place. He came from Nazareth to be baptized. And it's sort of, I mean, take this in. It's sort of weird. This guy shows up from Hawk Cove and is baptized in the Jordan. And then uh, after he's baptized, okay, probably in this area, he goes in the wilderness for testing. And then he moves back north again and bypasses Nazareth to live in Capernaum. Now what's weird is you would think that all these people in this area, as Jesus leaves the wilderness and starts hiking north again, that everybody's going, hey, wait a minute. Jerusalem is this way. If you've shown up here at the Jordan to be baptized in the Jordan with this sort of pronouncement that this kingdom is here and that you're the king, you got to go to Jerusalem to get this done. Washington, D.C. is this way. Don't go back to Hawk Cove. Okay, It's sort of a strange thing, a strange development, and we should notice. Wait a second. He bypasses Jerusalem and heads right back north, bypasses Nazareth, and moves to the place called Capernaum. Capernaum's on the Sea of Galilee. I thought if we're going to call Nazareth Hawk Cove, then maybe we'll call Capernaum Lake Tawacone. Okay, So he bypasses. Hawk Cove, and moves right back to Lake Tawakonee. Okay, so after his baptism, he moved from Nazareth to Capernaum to the region called Galilee. Go ahead and put that second map up there. This map kind of gives you a better sense of regions. Okay, I just showed you in the previous map some towns, and I'll show you where they are again. There's Nazareth. Capernaum is about right here where my uh, laser is jumping around. It's hard to keep that still. Uh, Jerusalem's right here, Bethlehem's here, here's the Jordan. Okay? This is the region of Galilee right here. Okay? This is Samaria, and this is Judea. And you, it would make sense that if Jesus lives up here, he made frequent trips back down to Jerusalem or Bethany, which was over here. He's making these trips. He passes through Samaria and talks with a Samaritan woman at the well. Okay? that He's moving through this region frequently. The distance from Capernaum to Judea or to Jerusalem is about 82 miles. I mean, that's a hop and a skip in a land cruiser. That's easy. But on foot, we're talking about quite a journey, All right? a pretty significant journey. But he made that journey frequently north and south. Okay? Let's talk Galilee for a bit. Galilee is this region that's right up here up top, right there. Okay? Um, it's referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles. Okay? The reason it's called Galilee of the Gentiles is because about half of the population of Galilee was made up of Gentiles. This is not a purely Jewish region like it would be down around Jerusalem. There would be no of absolutely perfectly pure Jewish regions, but Jerusalem would be much more Jewish than Galilee. Galilee, half of the population were Gentiles, specifically Assyrians, and I'll explain that here in a moment. Now, Jews despise the area of Galilee. Okay, they referred to the area as a place of darkness, even in the time of Christ. This was a place of darkness, if for any reason, because there were a bunch of Gentiles living there, a bunch of unclean Gentiles, okay, and also because it's so far from Jerusalem. They're living in darkness way, way out there away from Washington, D.C., where people are really getting things done. Okay, you can kind of think about it in terms of our country. It's not the same thing, not the same transfer, but you can kind of get some idea. It's far enough away from the flagpole that it's darkness, but it's also a place that is half Gentile. So a great reason to consider it as a place that's despised. And then together we can enjoy that Jesus seeks out the despised and outcasts. So we can enjoy that all together. That's just like Jesus for him to move back to that area. Okay, now let's talk Capernaum. Okay, Capernaum is the town that I mentioned here. It's about the north and north side of the Sea of Galilee right there. Uh, Capernaum specifically... Um, I've kind of pointed out he leaves Hawk Cove, shows up at the Potomac, is baptized in the Potomac. I'm I'm, I'm overlapping metaphors here. He shows up by the flagpole announcing this big statement of a new age, and then he travels back to settle in Lake Okay, And then he calls fishermen to be his first uh, followers, and he calls maybe their version of... uh, uh, or They had tax collectors. Maybe if we're going to use the imagery of Lake Tawakonee, he calls liquor store owners to be his first followers. You ever driven around Lake Towakoni? <laughs> right? They're everywhere. So, I mean, it's the least likely, in the least likely place. I mean, think about what's going on here. I mean, anyone who wonders if he really uses the foolish thing to confound the wise just need look at his geography. Look at where he lived and where he moved. If we were to engineer a world-changing ministry plan, we would probably call what he's doing here foolish. I mean, let's just really be honest here. We uh, This is a really bad idea. And it makes me think, I wonder if our next church plant should not be in Lake Tewakonee. I mean, I'm not putting that out there as a definite, obviously. A lot of decisions take place there, but it makes me think, why would we not think about a dark place like that? Man, it's cool to see him moving back there. Okay, so Capernaum is on the seashore. It makes sense it's on the seashore. If His first disciples that are called are fishermen and tax collectors. The fishermen are doing what they do in the in, in the, the Sea of Galilee. They're catching fish. They're bringing them ashore, and the tax collectors have their booths set up right on the shore so they can collect taxes on the fish that have just been caught that are sold at market. It's a great place to call fishermen and tax collectors. Now, this is interesting that comes out of this passage in Matthew chapter 4 in verse 14. Okay, I've just sort of unpacked verses 12 and 13. And verse 14 starts with the word, start with the word, so that... Okay, Now, if you've been around cross-point long enough, you know that your, your ears are probably going, ooh, that sounds like a henna clause." And if you did that, then you did the right thing. Because in Greek, there's a word there for henna, or the, the Greek word is the word henna, and it means in order that for the purpose of. And that's going to help us crack the code on what in the world is Matthew doing here. Matthew doesn't waste detail. Matthew's not a geography major. <laughs> I mean, he's not sitting around like, oh, man, look at this map, look at that map. I can't, you know, I've memorized all the capitals of all the states. That's not Matthew. Matthew's making some specific points here, and this so that is the clue into what he's talking about. So let's see what it comes after, the words so that. He moved to Capernaum. He moved from Nazareth to Capernaum, which is in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that for the purpose of in order that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Okay, so that's our clue into where we're going to go from this point on. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to crack the code on what in the wide world of sports is Matthew getting at. Okay, so y'all can turn to Matthew 9. Pages, y'all can like, here's some pages turn. I, mean, I said Matthew, Isaiah 9, excuse me, Isaiah 9. And while you're turning there, I'll just point out again his nine-word sermon. Um, it's the first recorded words from Jesus in our Bible in Matthew Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A beautiful sermon, a succinct version of Christ's messages from that point forward. And we'll visit that sermon at the end of the morning. Okay, so we're going to spend the next few minutes unpacking and making sense of this passage in Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to try and crack the code on what is up with all this geography. What does it have to do with anything about where Jesus is living? Okay, The land of Zebulun and Naphtali... I mentioned before, okay, that Galilee was believed to be a land of darkness. We're talking about the same land. Okay, let's go ahead and put up a third map. And I might need the fourth one. Yo, this is good here. Okay, this is the third map. I'm gonna take a moment and do a brief refresher on the northern and southern kingdoms. Okay, I think it's gonna help us this morning. And this is where I was talking about things could get a little, they haven't quite got bumpy yet. I thought they were, so maybe we're going to survive this morning. We'll see. All right, actually give me the fourth map because this may be a better visual for you of the northern and southern kingdoms. Now, uh, it seems like it was a few weeks ago where I was talking about the ABCs of understanding your Bible. These are the ABCs. Okay. I was beyond seminary before I had any sense of all this, and that's embarrassing. I'm sharing that to my shame. Our children know these things now. So adults, if you're like, I don't really know what you're talking about here, pay really close attention because chances are the child that's on your row has already learned it right across the hall. Okay, and I'm not doing that to make you feel bad. I'm doing it to make you feel like a sense of urgency. I need to understand this. Okay, So let me see if I can give you kind of a refresher on the northern and southern kingdoms. Okay, um, After David, David's uh, King David, King David had a son named Solomon. Solomon became the next king after David. And after Solomon... Uh, came his son named Rehoboam. Okay, Rehoboam, um, the, and, and this never happens, where a young guy thinks he's got it all figured out. <laughs> Rehoboam thought he had it all figured out, and he wouldn't take counsel from older men. He took counsel from his young high school buddies, and he made some really bad decisions, and it resulted in the kingdom of Israel being split in two. Okay? And this is the split. This is what it looked like. This northern kingdom was later called Israel. At that point, it's called Israel. And the southern kingdom is called Judah. And this if you don't understand this and you're just reading through your Bible, you don't know who they're talking about. I mean, it's important that you ground to the book you're talking about and understand which prophet is talking here or which king and which kingdom you're talking about. This will really make your Bible come alive if you understand these simple ABCs. Okay, so you have this northern and southern kingdom. This is the kingdom of Israel. And this is the kingdom of Judah. kingdom of Judah was made up of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Okay? The northern kingdom was made up of everyone else. Okay? Now go back to that third um, slide, if you would. Okay? The region of Naphtali and Zebulun are right here. Now, these regions were all broken up by the sons of Jacob that all moved into the promised land, the sons of Israel, and how they were all distributed portions of the land. Okay, So they, uh, their, their, their names reconcile or agree with who they are and where their people, where their, their family settled, and where they set up house. Okay, So the region of Naphtali and Zebulun, if you were paying attention to the earlier maps, is in Galilee. Those are synonymous. Okay, Now, let's look at Isaiah chapter 9 and see if we can make sense of what's going on here. We know that the nations that has been split into the northern kingdom of Israel... And the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay, let me see if I can sort of help you make sense of what's going on here in Isaiah chapter 9. Before Isaiah chapter 9, there's a couple things that are developing. Okay, there's a serious darkness that's developing for both the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. Okay, serious darkness developing. Basically, what has happened okay, is Israel in the north... Go back to that fourth slide. It might be helpful to just kind of keep the big picture visual. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel is in cahoots with Syria. Syria is off to the right here to invade Judah. Okay, Israel is in cahoots with Syria to invade Judah. That's what's leading up into chapter 9 of Isaiah. Meanwhile, Judah in the south... Is, is like confronted with this real threat from Israel and Syria, brokered a deal with the Assyrians who live way over here for their protection or something. I don't know. It's a little complicated, these political dynamics. Okay, Israel's in cahoots with Syria. Judah's in cahoots with the Assyrians. Now, basically here, let me kind of make it really simple for you. Two mice, a mouse here and a mouse here, are making deals with cats because they're afraid of the other mouse. If you want to really kind of understand what I just described with the Assyrians over here and the Syrians, mice are making deals with cats to protect themselves from other mice. Do you reckon that's going to go well? <laughs> well, it didn't. Okay, and we'll we'll talk about that here in a moment. Okay, so basically, what's unfolding because they've made these deals with these foreign um, countries, Syria and Assyria, that there is a deep darkness coming to the entire land. Okay, look at the last verse in verse 8. A deep and terrible darkness, and they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And okay, what he's talking about specifically is this these guys up here are going to be raided by the Assyrians. These guys are going to come and raid Israel and they're going to take Samaria, their capital. Okay? And these guys are eventually, about 130 years later, going to be dragged off to exile to Babylon. It's a terribly dark season. The end of chapter eight, man, this really this thrust into thick, thick, terrible darkness. Now here's where Zebulun and Naphtali come in. Okay, go back to that third map for me, because I want you to see where these guys live. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, this place right here. Okay. This place was invaded by the Assyrians in 735 B.C. The first tribes of the northern kingdom that were deported to Assyria came from these two tribes, Naphtali and Zebulun. That's the place that is really, in many ways, sort of the ground zero for judgment on Israel and eventual Judah. Okay, ground zero. Zero, this is where it goes down. And it is a terribly dark thing. It's hard for us to imagine somebody invading our land, ripping you from your home. Is it Justin Lane? Okay, the walkers live on Justin Lane. We're gonna pull them out of their home and an Assyrian is gonna move in your house. Man, imagine that darkness. Can you imagine anything worse? Not just being ripped from their home, but the walkers are gonna be taken into slavery in Assyria. Okay, a foreign land, and the house that they built, the life that they've built is stripped from them. Man, we're talking about a terrible, terrible darkness. This land to the west of the Sea of Galilee, listen, hear me, is ground zero for the judgment on Israel and Judah. Okay, so let's see what Isaiah chapter 9 has to say about it. We know what's happening in Isaiah chapter 8. The real darkness is developing. That last verse in chapter 8 says, man, dark, gloomy place. It's the middle of the night there. And then in chapter 9, let's see what it says. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. But but okay, it's dark because they deserve it. It's dark because they made deal with deals with cats. It's dark because they bailed on the Lord and trusted in their own little schemes and plans, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, ripped from their homes. Assyrians move in. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, (laughs) He's made it glorious? I thought this was a dark place. Yes, he has made it glorious. Let's just start with this first word, but. But. It reminds me of another passage in Ephesians chapter 2 that starts with the words, but God. It's a beautiful picture that the course is changing. The direction is changing here. It's darkness and gloom because of the decisions that they've made. But God takes the initiative and says, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to bring some light to this darkness. Man, it's a beautiful, beautiful word. It introduces a change Of direction. Okay, you guys have acted, you guys have schemed, but God's gonna step into your darkness and take the initiative. And He's gonna change the course of this whole thing. The contempt in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be replaced with light, glory. This land, which was the first to experience God's judgment, will be where the light shines first the land beyond the Jordan in Galilee, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. In the place of Capernaum, Jesus. If you have to realize that when he moved from Nazareth, he comes down for baptism, he goes into the wilderness, and when he moves right back up to Capernaum, he moved to ground zero. Okay, if when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, if the Japanese had then continued to come on into our country and taken our country from us, somebody stands up, stands up, and they move to Pearl Harbor and they start preaching a new kingdom. It's radical. It's like somebody standing where the World Trade Centers fell and preaching a new message. It's a radical statement to move back to ground zero, and that's exactly what our Savior did. He moved back to where it became darkest first. And in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness having been ripped from their homes, Assyrians moving in, on them the light has shined. And the people who navigated this dark season will see and experience a great light. The same God who ordained the darkness of the Assyrian invasion and the exiles, both the Assyrian and Babylonian, has shined the light in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali in the person and ministry and work of Jesus Christ. Man, I, I believe this with everything in me. These Old Testament prophecies that are all over the place, when they're shared by Old Testament prophets, they have some little measure of application in the moment, some little measure of fulfillment, and we often call those shadows. It's a shadowy fulfillment of some substance later. That happens all the time. It didn't happen in this case. What was prophesied by Isaiah that was going to happen in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali didn't happen for 700-something years until Christ moved to Capernaum. <laughs> then It happened. There's no shadow version. It's just plain substance. That's what Matthew's saying. He's now here. Here he is. Man, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Now, what do we do with this? All right. Y'all made it. I think we made it. I really think we made it. I can't believe it. I feel like we just, I, I feel like we just flew, flew a rocket. I don't even know how to fly a plane, so that's amazing. Good. Okay. All right, so let me, let's just deal with some application. Okay. Just a couple of application thoughts. What does this have to do with us here in 2019 in Granville, Texas? First of all, let me get a sip of coffee here just to catch my, my breath. Okay, here's the application thought. Jesus moves to ground zero. Light has dawned in the place that was darkest first and sustained darkness for 700-something years. Okay, here's the first application thought. There's really only two, and they're really sort of interconnected. Darkness happens because we live in a fallen world. Okay, in the case of Israel, in the case of Judah, darkness happened for them because they had faithless kings, one right after another. If you've ever read the story of in 1 and 2 Kings 1 and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, it is a heartbreaking story. You have double-mint gum, you have double-mint judgment, double-mint sadness going on in those two books. <laughs> That's four books. First and second kings, first and second Chronicles. For them. They're dealing with the darkness that came from one faithless king after another. They're dealing with the darkness that came from idolatry, the darkness that came from making schemes with cats, from making godless plans, godless plans that seemed wise at the time. Man, they're having to deal with that darkness. For us, though, man, I think we have to deal with the darkness of living in a fallen world, first and foremost. High school buddy, grew up with, went hunting with, spent most of my childhood with, Beautiful young wife, mother of his child, 4 a.m. yesterday, passed away. We live in a dark world that's fallen. Randy Daw, embolism, he's gone. Man, we live in a world where darkness happens just because we live in a fallen world. We also live in a world where darkness happens because some of the product of our sins introduces to a darkness. Darkness. Sometimes we're dealing with the sins of our fathers, sometimes we're dealing with the sins of others, and sometimes we're dealing with the product of our own sin. But God. But God. Man, goodness gracious. Can we just for a moment enjoy that that Simple word, but, in Isaiah 9, the but God in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2 is such a welcome word to know that our God loves us enough to take the initiative and step into the darkness to find us and get us. That while we were yet sinners, in and through the person and work of, the, of Jesus Christ and his message, that he brought light to a dark place because that's what he does. Man, the light in Matthew comes to the darkest place that was the darkest first, the epicenter Of pitch darkness. They're the first to see and hear the preaching of the light of the world. Jesus moved into the darkness to get his people. Because that's what he does. He took the initiative. I love our Jesus for that. (laughs) For these darknesses we all feel we can enjoy. That we have that kind of God. Man, he promised that a Messiah was going to bring light to the darkness. Isaiah did and sure enough he did. Seven hundred something years later, and he brings light to our darkness. David wrote a song of deliverance in Second Samuel. He said, "You are my light, You are my lamp, O Lord. My God lightens my darkness." People, we got to enjoy. That's the kind of God that we have. A kind of God that speaks light into darkness and says, "Let there be light." From the beginning, that's how he's been, and that's who he is. And we have a great father that takes the initiative to find us in our darkness. Second Corinthians chapter 4, a uh, Corinthian church was so problematic and so difficult. If anybody would think of a, a, church, a church that dealt with a lot of darkness, it would be the Corinthian church. And this is what Paul writes of the Corinthian church. He says, "...for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ." Mm. What a great father and what a great son. Now, the second part of the the application for the morning is really a word. I'm going to borrow a word from Jesus' nine-word sermon. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Matthew's capturing sort of a succinct version of Christ's message. The first recorded words from Jesus in Matthew, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I've realized, I've thought about this word, this word repent. And I thought maybe in 15 years worth of preaching of how seldom I use that word. And maybe I'm preaching passages that don't have the word in it. If you've paid attention this morning and if you pay attention to how I preach, typically I'm unpacking the passage in front of us. But we can't miss it, that word is here. This morning, that word repent. That word repent means to turn around. It means to turn away from. So I want to urge you with this thought, people of God, first of all, repent from your schemes and your best made plans. Repent from trusting in those things. Make plans, but don't trust in them. Man, hold to them lightly. Because, man, there will be a darkness that will come from time to time that will rip away your best laid plans where you'll realize all you've got in that darkness is Christ. Man, hold loosely to them. Make them, make them, but hold loosely to them. Repent of trusting in your schemes and your plans. I was thinking about these guys in the nation of Israel and the nations of Judah and the guys that were leading those countries at that time. They must have had really good plans and they're talking around these councils and they're like, hey, man, let's make a deal with Assyria. That sounds really wise. Hey, let's make a deal with uh, Syria in the north. That sounds like a great plan. You know, God says he's going to be here for us, but surely we've got to act. We've got to come up with some sort of plan. Man, their plans were godless. You Realize that we can be pragmatists and be completely godless. You can come up with a plan that looks like it's going to work. You know, the indictment against the people of Israel in the time of the judges was this. Everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. I mean, let that hit you for a minute. I don't think the king in Israel and the king in Judah was saying, Man, I want to come up with the worst doggone plan I could possibly come up with. Let's come up with, let's do something about as stupid as we can think of. People were doing what's right in their own eyes. They're the judge of what's wise instead of God judging what's wise and God's ways being clear and followed. Man, if we trust that His word is a lamp unto our feet, we have a book here that is sufficient for every good deed. We can peer into what God says is best. We don't have to rely on our best laid schemes and plans and determine on our own what we think is wise. This says what's wise. And let me tell you something. Being a worshiper is the least pragmatic thing you can possibly be. If you're about pragmatism, man, you can be practical with how you take care of your car, how you pay your bills, how you tend to your house, all that kind of stuff. But, man, that's not worship. There's nothing practical about worship. Worship means it costs you everything. You're giving up at all. It's all being held loosely. Pragmatism is a terrible God. Man, give up and repent of those best laid schemes and plans if you are a believer and follower of Christ already. And if you're not, let me, let me appeal to those who are not following Christ right now. I, I hear from time to time. I understand from time to time to time that we have folks visiting with us on a given Sunday that might have been invited by someone um, Maybe they've heard about us, or maybe they just kind of have this feeling, man, I wonder what's going on with, with this faith stuff. And some of y'all have been worshiping with us for some time. I know some of y'all have been visiting with us for some time, and you're, like, you're coming hearing. Some are even tuned in online right now who listen each week that aren't believers, that aren't trusting Christ their Savior and Lord. Let me appeal to you right now if I can. Repent of trusting in your own works. I'm begging you, repent of trusting in your own works. Realize what you're doing on your best day, in your best efforts, with your best schemes. You're just groping about in the dark. Repent of trusting in those things. At least consider this. Your wife may pass away at 4 a.m. in the morning. A friend may die of an embolism. It might be you. Man, I'm encouraging you to consider this word that Christ offered is repent. Repent from trusting in yourself. Repent in trusting that you can be good enough. Repent in trusting that you can stand before your creator someday. If you do believe there is a creator and say, well, I've been better than I have been bad. Repent of relying on your own schemes and your own works and cast yourself on Christ. Turn away from your best laid plans. Turn away from trusting yourself or trusting in anything other In Christ and turn to this is a terrible tutor, isn't it? But it's a good one. It's terrible in the sense that it's thinking hurts. It's excruciating. But what a great tutor in that it shows us the only true light. When everything else is stripped away, and you realize, man, everything that I've leaned into, everything that I've trusted in, everything that I've depended on is gone. And all I've got is Christ. You've found something. You've found the secret, the treasure. Man, God has done a great and special work in you. And let me just tell you this: by turning to Christ, confessing that you're, are, you're, you're confessing your abject helplessness, confessing your complete insufficiency, confessing your total inadequ- inadequacy, does something to you. It turns on the light in the darkness. It bathes the dark crevices and the dark corners, so that you can now see yourself and you can see where to know, where to go, and how to navigate. Man, I encourage you. Turn to Christ. You don't have to live in fear when the lights go out. Not if they go out, but when they go out. Repent and believe on him whom he has sent. Let me pray. God, I pray for us as a people, Lord. I pray that we will just be such a Christ-dependent people, uh, that the darknesses that we've experienced individually and maybe even collectively, Lord, that will just just create in us this ultra-dependence on Christ. This ultra-dependence on you, this dependence on your word, peering into it to make sense of all things. Lord, I pray that you would refine us through these glimpses into this story in Matthew. Lord, this morning we're thankful for a Savior that moved to Capernaum, that moved to the epicenter, that moved to ground zero. We're thankful for his boldness. We're thankful for his gentleness, his lovingness character in moving to the least likely, to the least likely place. Thankful for his bravery in stepping into the darkest place first. Lord, we're thankful that he moves into our dark space, that you move into it, that you take the initiative, that you own the verbs. God, we are helpless and we need you. And we are so thankful for Christ. He is our light. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Let's distribute the elements. Thank you.